Blog Talk Radio. Well, good Tuesday. I'm sorry, good Thursday afternoon. And this is here. I'm here in beautiful North Florida. I have a very, very great, great show ready for you today. I uh, have a very special guest. Her name is Marianne Wideline. And let me just tell you a little bit about her before I um, before I welcome her to the show. Uh, Marianne Wideline is an author, a transformational fil- facilitator, an evolutionary guide, combining her 45-year background in human potential development, spirituality, and self-employment to help groups and individuals achieve success. In 26 years of self-employment, she has developed expertise in self-mastery, peak performance, leadership, intentional manifestation, and self-employment. She has facilitated innumerable programs of varying size and formats to thousands of individuals and partnerships using her curriculum and techniques. By phone, she guides women to become intentional authors of their unique destinies. She facilitates them to identify their sabotaging patterns, determine the most positive alternatives to replace them with, and supports them to follow through. She authored Empowering Vision for Dreamers, Visionaries, and Other Entrepreneurs, which is now an online business course. Hi, Marianna. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi to you as well. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's just a, a gorgeous day here in North Florida here on this thir- on this Thursday afternoon, and when I hear it's really pretty out where you live as well. Yes, it is nice and uh, sunny. Yeah, that's always a good thing to see. Uh, we've we've been without sun here in Florida for about a month, so it's very very great to speak to someone so inspirational on such a beautiful day. It's, that's what I was thinking as I was taking my walk today. I was thinking, wow, I get to speak with this very, very in- inspirational woman, and it's it's already just such a beautiful day. So I think um, I think our paths have crossed at a very good time. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad we've got a sunny day for you then. <laughs> I can <laughs> yes. pass it on to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for that. I know all of North Florida thanks you as well. Um, good. <laughs> So, uh, Marianne, tell me a little bit about what inspired you to become, I mean, you have so many years, 45 years background and 26 years in, in uh, I believe, in, in, t- in uh, the uh, uh, self-employment and learning self-mastery and things like that, and those were some of the topics I wanted to go over with you, but but, but what what made you, you? Well, it's who I am. <laughs> to start with, it is absolutely who who I am, and um, you know I grew up in the '40s and '50s um, in a different world, and way different world than we have now. And and um, and then the '60s came, and a, a lot of desire for change erupted during the during the mid '60s, mid to to late '60s, and has kept going ever since then. As a matter of fact, and so, 42 years ago, I'm one of the people in the 60s who woke up and said, you know, I want to be different than I am. And so I committed myself to become the very, very best person that I could be. And transformation became so important to me that 21 years ago I chose it as my professional service. It was a great choice because my work and my words to clients are my inspiration and training. And plus, I constantly experience joy as I assist people to develop 
the high qualities they value and want to embody. So, you know, I feel blessed. I feel blessed that I'm doing what I need. I'm doing it so I can get the support. And then in turn, I can give that support to others. And I think for me, that's the greatest blessing there is. Right. So so giving back is, is your true true calling and, and what sustains you? Absolutely. It's also how I make my living. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, it's um, you know, I live out of my heart. I'm one of those people that's completely heart-based. Every choice I make is, is made out of my heart with some reasoning and logic connected with it. But nevertheless, it has to feel good for me. And so my work is just about the best feel good that I could that I could experience because I literally listen to somebody in each one hour session. I listen to their voice change. I listen to to them shift from feeling whatever they were feeling when they came to the call to feeling really good at the end of the call. I mean sometimes that isn't the case, but I'd say ninety 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 five percent of the time it is. And that is so wonderful for me to hear. And mm-hmm. So it's inspiring to me. I get to finish each call feeling better than I than I felt before the call too. Hmm. Well, you are very very lucky to uh to be able to to feel feel so good for what you do for a living because there's so many people I know that actually feel the opposite when they get finished yeah. with what they do. And there was one of the things I wanted to ask you about uh Intend the heart. Uh, that was one of the things that I read in, in your biography and uh, and your uh, uh, the way you, you you view the world and, and view women within the world. What does that mean? Women tend the heart. Well, um, I'm going to read exactly the, the little uh, the little paragraph that you read um, because this really speaks to who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing and the way in which I'm doing it now. I, I, I work with aspiring women who feel called to serve at this particular pivotal time in humanity's evolution. I believe that the heart and wisdom must come alive. The heart of each of us in caring for ourselves, in caring for each other, and in caring for all life. Because an awakened heart inspires wisdom, and all is cultivated and well-tended. And women tend the heart. We're the nurturers and protectors of life. So my feeling is that clearly it's time for us to assist humanity into a new and thriving future. Hmm. That's really that's really touching. Um, I never really thought about that Um with my profession i um it's very um the my faculties i use are my mind and uh, you know a lot of times i guard my heart because um um uh, my clients you know it, it would be very easy i feel like you know to sort of take um a lot of the the energy i have there and so be able to actually refill it and then make it more plentiful it's a really it's a really amazing thing for me to uh, to think about. I love the way you said that. And I, now I'm touched. We're touching each other. How fun! 
Um, <laughs> I'm touched because I, I, I love the way you said that, more plentiful. Do you know that the heart actually has a brain, that it has a system in, of intelligence within it? It's been proven. It's scientific. It's not woo-woo-woo-woo. And, um, and that heart actually forms in the body before the brain and the heart does. So it forms very mm-hmm. quickly. And it's the part of the intelligence system that reads energy and reads feeling and reads emotion. So it's connected with intuition for, for sure. It's also connected with when we listen to people and we hear the tone of their voice and we hear the tone of the voice change and it gets a little bit rough. And, you know, and then and then maybe it softens a lot and we feel more comfortable. Well, that's all because we're feeling and uh, we are, and so are the people talking with us, we're feeling, and that feeling is expressed from the heart, and then it is interpreted by the brain, and then the brain, from that information, decides what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And so um, so intuition, people who have high intuition, and I do, I'm very highly intuitive with my clients, because we we our hearts the brain in our hearts the intelligent system in our hearts is very active and we sense things we can see and feel things and we are uh if especially if we're in a field of of um a professional field like I am where it, I'm listening to people I mean I've been listening to people on the phone with regard to self mastery and peak performance I've been doing this for 21 years before that I worked in groups but over the phone it's very focused and so I've come to be able to read people and read what they're saying and actually feel and sense the tone between the words the feeling between the words and actually get more information from that and that's because my heart is very open and um and so my feeling is that you probably do um, you may guard your heart in terms of of how you feel about what you're listening to. As I understand, you're a mediator in the you know in the field of law, and I would imagine that 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 could be very challenging. But I'll bet that some of what you sense and interpret is definitely interpreted through your heart, through the brain in your heart. Mm-hmm. I, Does that um, make sense? It does. If I could re- repeat sort of something that, that occurred to me that when you were speaking that that I, I think that you might be um, maybe alluding to is that when we are first formed as a as an embryo, our heart is formed first. Um, mm-hmm. It's always about when the baby's heart beats. And generally, once a woman's found out she's pregnant, the heart is beating. And if that's the beginning of life, then it would make sense that within the heart would be its own system almost of of being its own mind its own um it, it, a lot of a lot of the um a lot of the organs and um, emotions and, and everything that we possess in our bodies could be possessed in our in our hearts and you know well, whenever but, i'm sorry i was i was just going to say it doesn't it doesn't process the same kind of information though because the information that it's processing is all vibrational. Okay. Hmm. It's all vibrational. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Interpreting. Well, and and wouldn't it need to? Wouldn't wouldn't it make sense? Because it's there. It is inside of its mom's womb, 
and you know, I had a child, so I know that all kinds of things happen, and you feel this and you feel that, and and the little guys are picking this up, and they're picking it up through the vibration that we emit, and they're sensing it through their hearts. Oh, so it's a different way of processing information. Yeah, and it's a different it's a different kind of information. The brain mm. doesn't feel. The brain and the head doesn't feel. The heart does. Mm. The brain and in, in the head interprets what the heart is feeling. Mm. That's if the truth. person is is connected, if the brain and the head and the heart are connected. Now, if you grow up in an environment where uh, it's not a loving environment, it's very cold and very aloof and very very mental and all that. You're you're not going. Your heart and your brain are, and you were never really held and wanted and all that. Oh, bless you for that. You're not. Your heart isn't going to be open. It can't be open because it's too painful to have an open heart in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. So, a, it doesn't develop in the first place because there's nobody around to help it develop. It has to be cultivated. It has to be nurtured. And b, if it were opened and and let's say it grew up in a good and you know in a loving, caring environment, and then were put into a, let's say a foster home, that oh goodness, like a lot of the situations I've heard of. That heart would close to protect mm. itself, like you probably do in mediation sometimes. Yeah, well, sometimes to do your your job, uh, especially if it's a family uh, family case, um, well, family law case. Um, you know, as a woman, you tend to be more uh, empathetic toward the children, and and um, you know, if you take that with you. And you're not seeing logically what really needs to be done, what's in the best interest. You know, you're feeling with your heart. Sometimes um, it can be a little bit. Um, uh, I don't want to say. I, I do think having a heart is very, very important. But sometimes you need to sort of put it to the side to get done what. Well, first of all, what the law says is is appropriate. But also, what is, is sometimes what's best for the, the children does come from a more um, cerebral, I guess, sort of logical uh, train of thought. Um, but it's not to say that the, the heart wasn't there. I mean, it, it just means that it was being interpreted uh, through through the mind and through through the faculties that we as lawyers have to to get things to get things settled and and, and uh, mediated properly. Well, see, that's you're using your your whole brain intelligence very well then, because you're interpreting what you're sensing and feeling and intuiting in the situation, and you're making decisions based on that. So you have a good heart brain relationship. Well, that is very you choose very wisely. Nice. You choose very wisely nice. in accordance with what you're picking up. That's very very nice of you. Thank you for saying that. That's a that's a, one of the strongest compliments I've had in a while. Uh, so thank oh. you for that. <laughs> well, and but, uh, thank you for thanking me. And I, I I don't mean to downplay what you said, but I'm just I'm just telling you what's true about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm um, glad you liked it. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I tell you, if a lot of um, if a lot of you know a lot of people, I think would realize that that using you know using the heart and mind in harmony with each other would actually get them a lot further, 
and I, I think women really um, have an advantage there. Um, as you said, women tend the heart, and women, I think, because you know we bear children, you know, we we tend to be more um, more open with our hearts. Um, we uh, we can um, we, we can use that channel a little bit. Maybe we can tap into the channel. Maybe is what I'm trying to say. Um, a little bit easier uh, than maybe men could. I don't know what your your maybe your maybe that's a good question to ask you. Is your thoughts? You know, I know that when I was reading your bio that you you guide women to become you know, authors of their own unique destinies. And I don't know if you've noticed what the difference is between men and guiding them as well as as guiding or tending their hearts. Absolutely, I have. Um, and, and and in addition to that, because this is part of my answer, is that the the, the older generation of which I am I am a part. I'm 66, and the younger generation. I've worked with a lot of people who, when I worked with them, they were in their 20s, or probably now in their in their 30s. So I've worked with a lot of younger people. Lot. As a matter of fact, I, I worked solely with younger people in their 20s and 30s for three years until a couple of years ago. And so what I'm leading to is that the younger generation of women and the younger gen- generation of men are very, very different than my generation, especially the males, especially the men. The younger generation of men are more open-hearted mm-hmm. and... Um, and, and as a matter of fact, they, uh, I, I have seen again and again and again and again that the younger men are very, very involved with their with the, their children when they when they have families, even when they're not with the mothers of their children. They're very um, they co-parent. They really do everything they possibly can to cooperate and co-parent these children. Whereas in my generation. The hearts of men were not open to this. Mm-hmm. And neither were neither were the parents of, of you know were my parents' generation. You know my parents uh, grew up in the uh, my generation. The parents of my generation grew up in the teens and the twenties and the thirties, and and then went through the Second World War. And open hearts weren't something that was going on a lot then. <laughs> as a matter of fact, but even just his, just from an evolutionary perspective. Opening the human heart is what's it's new. It started in the sixties when my generation stood up and said, This isn't okay. You know, the the blacks stood up and said, you know, we want freedom and then all kinds of groups stood up and said, you know, we want rights for animals and women wanted rights and children wanted rights for children and rights for this and rights for that and and um and a lot of people started changing. There were external activists, people wanting to change the world around them, and there were internal activists, of which I was one, who started changing ourselves because we weren't okay about the way we were. Mm-hmm. We were behaving the way our parents did, and it wasn't okay. So I think that I think that the heart is opening for humanity in general, and I think it's much, much harder for older men um, my age, who grew up with fathers that weren't very present, and so a lot of the men my age left uh, their their wives 
early with children, and, and that's where the term deadbeat dad came from, because their hearts were not open. They weren't caring as fathers. Doesn't I'm saying all of them by any means, but I'm saying in a general kind of way. Um, that's why so many women of my generation were single mothers um, and struggling, because a lot of them weren't even paying alimony or child support. That's what deadbeat meant. And so... You can't be a deadbeat father, so to speak. And I'm not being judgmental by using that term. It's just a term that was invented back then. You can't be that kind of person if your heart is open. Mm-hmm. You can't. And if you're caring and nurturing and giving, your heart is open. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. as simple as that. You're going to care about the dog next door who's who's tied up in the back all the time. and You're going to care. That's because the heart and is open and it's connected with the brain and there's an interaction like, like there is for you in your way, like there is for me in my way. There's a conversation going back be, between them, between the heart and the brain. Now, what do you think has changed with men, um, of, say, my generation, um, the, who are in their 20s and 30s and who um, who are more um, present with their children and uh and we're present with their jobs, even, and their wives. Well, a lot of them are present with their jobs, but they're very different. They, 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 the Generation X and Generation Y are very, very different in that they don't like holding down jobs for a long time, number one. Mm-hmm. They like flex time. They like to have flex time, and they like to telecommute and be home some of the time. I read a couple of years ago, as a matter of fact, now, this was then. I don't know what, what's going on now, but that the trucking industry was, 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 uh, was it was predicted that a lot of when my generation starts retiring, which, which it is, and the boomers start retiring, that there aren't going to be as many truckers, and so the trucking industry is going to be in trouble. And the reason is these younger guys don't want to be away from home from their families. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that is. That is. So because, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I've heard a lot of um, husbands and wives will will truck together. Uh, I, I've actually uh, read a couple of stories where that seems to be like a trend. Um, before they have children, they, they truck together. Um, you know, one mm-hmm. drives while the other rests and so on. And But that's very interesting that a, a truck driver, you know, you hear about, you know, truck drivers and songs and stuff, where they uh, where they uh, are away from their family for for weeks at a time, and um, it leaves the family really without a father, without a husband. Well, and a and a lot of these younger the, the younger people I know, um, they don't want to sit still in a truck. Oh, you know, yeah. they're active. They're active. That's their brains are active. They, you know, they grew up with in front of TVs and then computers. Whereas my generation, I mean, I we didn't even have TV for until I was, you know, in mid, and I think I was nine or something when we got a television. I hadn't even seen one, and so, um, but you know, our younger generation, the younger generation, and the the are the the children of my generation a little bit, a little bit more the boomers. That generation who grew up in front of TVs with single parents, they were in front of TVs a lot because the parents were working 
and um, and so they're getting a lot of information, a lot of rapid information. And I heard uh, recently that that the brain is actually set by the time we're 12 years old. So whatever you grow up with, whatever you're conditioned to, sets sets. Let's let's call it the tone. I don't know a better word to use, but it kind of sets the tone of your brain. It sets the way your brain is by the time you're 12. And and so if you grow up without a TV and you're outside and you don't have computer and you're outside a lot and you're 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 uh, using your creativity to children are using their creativity to um, make their own games and so forth and so on and they're reading and they're coloring and so forth. That's a very different brain than if you grew up on TV mm-hmm. um, and um, and um, and and also. Uh, computers good heavens so um yeah you know the, the, these two generations i think are probably more unalike than any two generations that have have ever existed mhm just because the their environments our environments were so so different and so these younger guys i think are also more fluid and flexible than than um than the, the men in my generation, because they were also uh, raised by by my generation, and we were starting to look for alternative ways to take care of kids, and um, you know, and so uh, co-parenting began. Eventually, we banned began searching for that, but also different kinds of um, babysitting situations, different kinds of school. My daughter, who's forty four. Now, who's 44, I enrolled her in a free school at the age of three. Mm-hmm. No uh, classrooms and no set curriculum and all of that. She didn't go to a public school until she was 11, I think. She knew how to write. And knew how, she graduated with her class because she's a smart one and because she was exposed to this sort of thing. But my generation started de- developing alternatives for everything you can possibly imagine. It's a very different world now hmm. than it was when, when my generation was growing up. Everything was very set, and this is the way it's supposed to be, and blah, 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 blah. In my house, you do this. And and uh, we were we were hurt. We were, we were hurt to, to be punished. You know, we were not helped to understand the consequences of what we were doing and why we should consider another way. We were physically hurt and threatened and so forth and grounded and, and all of these. But but we didn't do that with our children. And so our mm-hmm. children <clears throat> grew up with more freedom. So their brains, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, do you mind me putting myself on mute just a minute? No, no problem. <clears throat> Sorry for that. Um, so their brains are set in a, in, a, in a different tone, in a different position, in a different environment. Than, than the older generation. You know, I'm a, a student of history. I, I love history. And um, I'm actually considering going back to school to get my Ph.D. in, in history, uh, where, where I would focus on uh, women's studies. And um, and I, you know, you can study women in the progressive era, which is kind of like, well, you know, yeah, that's when, you know, the right to vote came about. But women's issues, you know, were 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 very active long before the right to vote. 
and we're still active after the right to vote with, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment not being passed and, um, and of course, Roe v. Wade with, with abortion and stuff. And what changed with with the boomers, with the with the children of the 60s to make the lives that we have now? I have a mother who um, is um, a boomer. She's a, she's a baby boomer. She had uh, me and my brother a little bit later in life. Um, not that it would be later in life, considered later in life now. She had me at 30. <laughs> but nowadays it's like uh, most, most people have children in their 30s. But... Um, but you know she she raised us to to think for ourselves to not let people put ideas you know in our heads that were necessarily um uh the you know not to let anybody tell us it's the right way to do things if we if we have questions about it that we should you know explore our own ways and I'm just curious what changed i mean if i if I were to to write a dissertation on the women of the sixties and what changed between the way they related to both their men, maybe their fathers and their husbands, and what did the women teach their daughters and sons, for that matter, um, that that changed us so much. I mean, I, I know there have been other things that have changed us, like TV being so ubiquitous, the Internet being so ubiquitous. I mean, you know, I know all those things um, helped drive change, but, but, but what changed for, for women that... Um, that that we could sort of take away thinking that uh, wow you know women really stepped up and and did this to to improve relations with with men well i'll tell you um first of all i want to say this as an aside there's a i read this in a book a, a chapter in a book or i took condensed some information from a book uh in the late 90s 97 or something called a compassionate the book is called a compassionate history and i condensed some of the information in there and put it into a little um into a word document and i'm going to send that to you i'm going to email that to you because i think you'd enjoy reading it it's only a couple pages long but it's just it's so beautiful it's like eating butterscotch pudding Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just just, (laughs) so you said you love history so do i by the way and women's history what a delight that you're going to you're you're thinking about doing that but I'll send you this now to your point I can tell you exactly what happened in the 60s um for me and um and the the, the kinds of reactions that were starting to happen to you know to my peers um we could not take the abuse and the you know people were st- teachers were still hitting children in school when we grew up I remember one teacher in sixth grade had one of my friends under his desk and was kicking him. My, that my friend came from a broken family, no mother. His father was, I remember him because they lived down the street. His father was a tough-looking guy. And my friend, when he would go to school, he wasn't relaxed. He wasn't relaxed. He wasn't calm. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't right to kick him. And um, and so they were still justifying that way of being then. That generation did not say abuse is not okay. That generation had so much to deal with because they 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 you know they matured in the 30s in in the uh, Great Depression and then went to war. 
they didn't have time to be thinking about abuse. They were surviving and dealing with war. And um, and and my generation um, happened to be the first generation on the planet in the history of humanity, at least in the history I've read in recorded history, first generation that said, this is not okay. Hurting people, um, racism, hurting animals, all these things, mm-hmm. that's not okay. My, the heart woke up when my mm-hmm. generation came to maturity. Mm-hmm. We started we started demanding as students, students. I, I was just leaving school when all of the um, school sit-downs and sit-ins and and sitting outside principal's office, or uh, it was most didn't start in high school, started in colleges, college dean offices and so forth, that that all started. So I wasn't involved in anything. I was never um, a, a reactive. You know, I never went to a a, um, a sit-in or any kind of demonstration at all. I, I, I became a hippie, so I was a peace, love, and freedom one. <laughs> but... Um, but but in every single walk of life, my generation started saying it needs to be different. Mm-hmm. We weren't sure what what was you know what needed to be the change. It was an exploration. I remember us experimenting a lot, trying this, trying that. Everything started changing. That's when plant stores, you know, in the early seventies. That's when. When plants, people started putting plants in their homes. Um, mm-hmm. I remember natural uh, leather stores where people sat in their stores and made purses and and uh, sandals. That started. It, things started changing from the manufactured template, the template of what came before. That's a good way to say it. The template of everything that was handed down from the previous generation started being changed and we were trying to get some back to something that was natural that was healthy that was caring um that was respectful mm-hmm. we were trying to get back to that none of us knew what we were doing when we started none of us involved in spirituality and healing and back to earth and that was a term that was used and all those different Think education, everything that began being changed. We didn't know what we were doing. We just knew what we weren't going to participate with anymore. And that's a lot of why divorce started becoming very prevalent then. Right. We got married for the same sort of reason. You know, you, it's, it's a romance, a romantic idea, although none of us ever saw the romance being true. It was still sort of ingrained in our brains that mm-hmm. it's supposed to be wonderful once you're married and you can have children. Well, Good heavens, both of those are a tremendous responsibility and it isn't always fun by any means. And and you know, we started realizing this isn't fun, this isn't this isn't right for me, it isn't what I want. And so everything started coming apart and and we were finding ways to put it back together in a different kind of way. That's really, really great. I, I know that you you have um um uh a background in studying spirituality and um the one thing that I've studied I started practicing yoga and I started meditating and then with that came the study of of Buddhism and mm-hmm. 
And, you know, through thousands upon thousands of years, five, six thousand years, this beautiful religion has been, you know, in existence and in some of the most horrible places in the in the world. And um I um I don't know if that had any play with sort of the the well the hippies as as you call it, but the sort of the awakening of the sixties, um you know, it was very much about peace and love and and wanting to to help each other, and and that's what I've experienced through through my yoga practice with with my uh, my, my fellow yogis, and um, and I actually have a there's a spiritual practice that, I, that here in Tallahassee where you go and there's um, you know there's a lot of spiritual uh, healing and chanting and things like that, and it, it all it's all reminiscent. Of, of course, I wasn't alive in the '60s, but what I've seen of the '60s. I don't know if if maybe the the religion of of Buddhism or or Zen of course or or even Hinduism had any sort of maybe maybe there was a hybrid kind of thinking going along with that or something like that. There were a lot of um um gurus and swamis and Maharishis and I don't remember all the terms that came over here in the late seventy late sixties and um much more prevalent during the seventies mahatmas mm. um you know they they were they they started coming over here a lot and and I was exposed to to different ones and um a lot of them had specific teachings that they uh they brought with them. And although I liked some of what they um, they offered, I couldn't be a follower because I'm one of the people that has to follow from within myself. Mm-hmm. And so I've never been able to um, I've never been able to to be a follower of a particular guru. I have mm-hmm. a great deal of respect for a lot of what I'm aware of, um, and. And and I've been influenced by a lot of it, for sure. But it all becomes integrated into through me and what feels right to me. Again, my heart has always been the been the, uh, the decider for me. And and then I make my own choices from that, and do, do what I do. So I've been a meditator for decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, yoga, I started doing yoga in 1969. Um, I started changing my diet. I stopped eating meat mm-hmm. in 1969. I started eating more raw food than not in 1969, or no, early 70. And um, and I, I started, um, you know, preparing my own food rather than getting prepared foods. Mm-hmm. I worked my first job for a non-traditional sort of um, business. I Let's see, I started there in 1970, I think it was. 70, 71, was in a natural food store. Mm-hmm. And I, I was the office manager. And, um, and you know, I haven't worked in the traditional environment except for a couple of little dabbles twice since 1971. I've been in the non-traditional environment. And, of course, I've been self-employed. It's almost 27 years now. Oh, okay. Uh, mid-80s. And 84, I think it was. It was in the spring of 84. And um, and 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 so, it, you know, 
we just kept looking for those of us who started out back then, especially, and those who started all, uh, focused on their personal growth and finding their own unique way. We have a lot of exposure to a lot of different things, like you're doing. And then we find our own way. And it's usually eclectic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it serves us in our in in the unique way our own destinies need to be served. I think that's just tremendous because I never have believed that one religion will um, satisfy everyone. Um, usually, one religious is, one religion is being made out of someone else's um, mind and and heart, and that doesn't necessarily match up with someone else's. And I think that's why I was so. Uh, um, I found Buddhism so appealing is because it is about your own path. And, you know, every every yoga class, it was like, you know, wherever you are now is perfect and good. You're on your own path, you know. <laughs> I couldn't do a full back then, <laughs> you know. That was okay. <laughs> so, um, and, and, I, and I guess I had never, um, I had never experienced that because I had, I grew up in a, you know, a Protestant Childhood, you know, you, we went to we went to church, and there was the you know the dogma, you know, it was just very dogmatic, and it I guess it just never really um, I, I just had my own thoughts, and you know it was kind of like well those weren't welcome, and I thought well I'm not sure that I want to be part of something where I'm not it's you know where my own feelings aren't welcome, so um, mm-hmm. but yeah so I, I don't. You. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah because, people... because you can't be somebody else. Yeah. The the only the only person you can be and do it well is the one that comes from within you. That's right. That's right. You can be proud of you. Well thank you. I um I uh, think that um I think that was a big turning point for me because I was in college and I was just kind of like, you know, this this just doesn't mesh well with, you know, with me and and you know, it, it can be kind of um, you know, you you can kind of take a lot of criticism from people who still believe that, you know, they should follow a certain a certain path, but um what is that quote? It's really great. So Ralph Waldo Emerson, it's like, do not go where the path may lead, make your own path. You know, it's sort of like venture out on your own, make your own path, <laughs> and that's what I, I, you know, feel like I've done, and you have certainly done in reading your bio. I mean, you you've um, reached out to groups and, and and individuals and alike, and and help them achieve success. So, I guess you know that leads me to to one of the prepared questions I have for you, which was can I can I say something before sure, you? Sure, certainly. I was. Um... Let's see, in 1984, I was 40 years old when I graduated from college. And tomorrow morning, I begin, after 21 years of being a coach, tomorrow morning I begin a, a certified a program for certifying coaches. So mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in May, I will be a professional certified coach. Oh, certified, great. certified professional coach. Right. After 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 21 years of of doing it for a living, so I've never been trained. I created all my own programs myself, out of going within. And I would ask a question, you know, like for example, I wrote Empowering Vision for Dreamers, Visionaries, and Other Entrepreneurs. I wrote it in the 80s by saying, "What is business?" 
And I, I wrote it, by the way, out of my frustration that getting a business degree didn't teach me how to do business. It taught me the, uh, well, I'm not quite sure what, the theories and the different aspects of business, but it didn't tell me how to do business. And so out of frustration from that, I said, well, then I'm going to figure it out. And I had worked in the business world for uh, 25 years before that. So I said, well, hey, I'm going to figure it out. So I did. I said, what is business and empowering vision for dreamers, visionaries, and other entrepreneurs? And the business courses I did for 10 years were the response to that question. Mm-hmm. So we can figure it out for ourselves if we have a mind to. And I want to say one more thing that I am so grateful for, and that is I did not grow up with religion. Mm. I was not told what to think and what not to think. I was told what to do. I was owned. Yes, indeed. Don't do this. Don't do that. If you do this, you know, you're going to, oh, boy, okay. So I grew up in a lot of fear and a lot of abuse, but I was never told what to think or what not to think. And as a result of that, I grew up, I was very disturbed when I left home because you you don't grow up being abused and and be just perfectly fine. But my brain, my mind was free to think and quest and ask questions about whatever I wanted. And, and I, for whatever reason, and I, I don't know, I wasn't told, you know the answer to that question. I was told, go look it up when I was growing up. I was never told I know the answer. I was never told to go within. I just went within because there wasn't anybody around to go to. Mm-hmm. That's how I developed the, the, the pattern of that. And so um, I, through my life, have learned that we, and through working with clients, I mean, they're the ones who've taught me m- most of what I know, what I understand, I've learned from my clients because I ask questions of them for a living. And so what I was going to say is that we all absolutely do know our own answers. They are within us. It's just that we have to break out of whatever constraints we were raised in to think that, number one, first of all, we even deserve to ask what we mm-hmm. want, and number mm-hmm. two, to persevere until we until we can hear or feel a response. That's really great. I uh I uh, wish more people, more people felt that way. Um, but some people just kind of go through life without really even asking questions, let alone being told, you know, to go find the answer. But sometimes they don't even have questions. They just accept things as um, as fact or the way they are. And uh, that's what I admired most about you in reading your resume and um, your um your uh, your renewal for women, um, your, your sort of mantra type thing for that is that um, that you have went out and found the answers for yourself and are willing to show others that they can find their own answers as well. But that your 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 bio to me spoke that you weren't going to tell me what tell me where to go or what to do, but you were going to to lead me lead me to water. I suppose. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. Who are you? Where are you going? And 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 what do you? How how do you want to get that, get there? And and I, many 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 times my clients say I don't know. Mm. And and you know how I, I I've tried a number of different things over the years, and the, the best way I have found to get the answer out of them because I can 100% of the time now. The best way to do that is and this is the exact wording. Well, if you were going to know, 
what do you think the answer might be? It doesn't take them very long, and I'll tell you why it works. If you were going to know, it immediately takes the pressure off. Okay, well, you don't have to. Re- I don't have to be responsible for this. And a lot of people who deal with the the perception that they're not good enough and that they can't make mistakes and that they never do anything right and they always do things wrong, things wrong. And that's a lot of people, by the way. Once they hear, if you were going to know, and I always soften my tone when I ask them. So let me let me ask you this: If you were going to know, what do you think the answer might be? I'm putting might in there the second time, and that softens it even more. And now they're not on the spot, and they very quickly find the answer. Hmm. That, that, so, to me, that to me is so exciting. So why do you think that is? Do you think maybe they don't have to take maybe full responsibility, or they don't? They feel like maybe I don't have to do it if I say it because it's a might, it's a possibility, it's a, it's a, almost a pretend. No, the brain does not feel um, pressured. Mm. So there's no pressure pressure that they have to do it. It's that they might, could do it. No, it's not even that. It's that they don't even... I say, if you were going to know what what might the answer be, Mm -hmm. the might especially takes all the pressure off so they can relax a little bit, you see, and the brain Mm -hmm. actually... The brain can actually think because before that, uh-oh, and they shut down, they tighten, they can they contract, and they shut down. The brain contracts too, and so they can't answer. They don't know until I take the pressure off. I can say, "What's your guess?" Um, that helps too. But I really like saying, "If you were going to know, what might the answer be?" I like that one best because that takes all the pressure off, Why? and then they can relax and they get the answer. They feel pressure. Wonder why do your clients feel the pressure to, if if you oh ask boy. them, you know, what does your heart know? What is the, where does that pressure come from? I mean, I sometimes, you know, you know, you know, I'm a lawyer, and lawyers tend to be very um, <laughs> have the uh, have the uh, need to be right all the time, and and sometimes may I mean, I'm just sort of, you know. Presupposing here, but you know maybe there there's a pressure to be right. Like if I tell her the wrong answer, I'm going to be wrong, or I don't know. You just, could get sued. Yeah, you could be disbarred. I mean, you've yes. got a lot of pressure. Yes, yes. I feel for you, by the way. I feel for you, <laughs> doctors. And um, doctors. But, but yeah. Here, here it is. Here's what happens. They grow up in an environment that demands, demands, demands that they be right. Do it right. Do it the way I tell you to do. Maybe they're hit. Maybe they're they're punished. Um, maybe they are sent to their room. Um, maybe they're they're uh, they didn't get an A in their in their whatever course, and um, and so they get um, emotionally berated. Um, maybe they're told you never do anything right. You always do things wrong. Maybe they're hit a lot with mm-hmm. that. So it's. Having to be right, definitely not, never being wrong. Now, those are the extremes, and then there's everything somewhere in between where, you know, maybe they had um, high-achieving parents, maybe Mm -hmm. a a highly artistic child, highly sensitive, intuitive, artistic child, grew up uh, born from a doctor and an attorney, for for example. I've, I've actually had clients that come from a doctor and an attorney. And and an artistic client, 
And they can't live up to that because their brains are very different than the the left brain kind of brains of an attorney and a doctor. And an artist is more right brain. They're mm-hmm. more heartfelt. They sense. They feel. They have visions. Um, who got? Who knows where music? Where you know the music comes from for composers? Wow, that's not from the kind of, same kind of brain that a doctor or an attorney would need. And so mm-hmm. you grow up in an environment that demands of you to be a certain way, belittles you, punishes you. Um, compares you with an older brother or an older sister or an uncle or whomever, you feel less than, you feel not good enough, and you end up thinking that a lot. Okay, well, okay, I'm not good enough. The people that I know that 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 deal with the perception of not good enough are some of the people, some of the loveliest people you'll meet. But when they don't do it right, they are hurtful to themselves. They call themselves names. They're very harsh with themselves. I've worked with, with I think it's four different people who deal with not good enough, who actually are self-mutilators. Oh, no. Oh, that's horrible. They're angry at themselves because they're not good enough, because they grew up with that kind of pressure and demand and insult and and abuse. And so they are then, and mm-hmm. that's what I mean by the brain is set by the time they're 12. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can and change all... it. Mm-hmm. You can change not good enough. That's actually what I help my my clients do, the, 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 the people who deal with not good enough. I actually help them to retrain their brains to feel that they are good enough. And as a matter of fact, I just got a, my webmaster is just uploading a quote on my website today from a client, uh, she's just turned 50. And um, when she started working with me, she definitely, she not only felt not good enough, but she she did not like herself at all. Mm. And um, and her quote said not something like, not only am I good enough now, but I'm lovable. Mm-hmm. And this 50-year-old woman at the age of 50 is literally is starting a new life because she feels not only good enough, but she feels lovable. And so all of her relationships are changing as a result of that. She's lighter and easier and more gentle with herself. Hmm. That is that is one of the the happy stories I've heard all day. <laughs> that is just oh, great. Oh, I'm glad to tell it to you. Yeah, I mean, I that get is to just hear great. these all the time. <laughs> Now you know why I love my work. Definitely, definitely. I mean, to to have someone finally accept themselves as where they are at age fifty um, is quite a feat. I mean, quite a feat. There's a lot of stuff that's sort of been, you know, repetitive that you you kind of if you constantly tell yourself you're not good enough and all the stuff in your head, but to to be able to 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 change someone's outlook on themselves. I mean, it's never too late. I, you know, it's. It's never too late. I, I mean, you know, if you can live one day and with peace and harmony, that that is um that is a, a beautiful thing. That is a and beautiful. that's a beautiful thing you just said, and that's absolutely right. One day, with total peace and harmony, without th- even thinking a negative thought, would, well, that would be a miracle. Oh yeah. Because 
60%, or is it, no, we think 60,000 thoughts a day. I read that years ago, and recently I heard it again, 60,000 thoughts a day. I can't imagine thinking 60,000 thoughts, but apparently we do. That's a busy brain there. But 80% of it, 45,000 of those thoughts are negative. Not this, not that. It's all about not. And you know what? It occurred to me some time ago that our English language is so interesting. That sound of not, 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 not must have gotten so um, unappealing to somebody along the line in the development of the language that they took the O out and now it's unt. So we don't hear ourselves (laughs) saying, I won't, you didn't, you can't, he shouldn't. Excuse me, I will not, you cannot. Somebody must have gotten so frustrated with hearing that so much that they just took it away, and now we don't even hear how negative we are. Well, that's a that's a, a good way to, to end the show. We only have about three minutes left today, and uh, I wanted to, uh, to ask you, if first of all, if there's anything you want to say just to sum up, and also if you feel free if you'd like to give out your website or, or, or you know, email or any whatever information you feel comfortable giving out, feel free to, to do so now if you'd like. Well, my website is empoweringvision.com, empoweringvision, one word, dot com. And I'm on Facebook, and so um, your readers, listeners can uh, can find me on Facebook. Tell me you heard me on this show. I'd be glad to friend with you if you'd like. And yes, I do have a final thought. Thank you for asking. As Mahatma Gandhi once said, be the quality of change you wish to seek. And I like this. Because we do change our world by com- by becoming the qualities that foster the world we want. And guess which people are the most v- desirable and valuable during challenging times? The people who wish t- for change and are frustrated when it doesn't happen. Those people are going to come to the people who, by whose very presence promise and create a new world. I long ago chose to cultivate this, and it's more fun, and and change is easy when you know how to do it. Uh, well, thank you so much, Marianne. I really appreciate your coming on my show today and sharing with us all this beautiful, beautiful uh, information. So um, I'm going to go ahead and end the show and sign off. We're less than a minute away from uh, from the show ending, so I'd just like to say a thank you to you. And thank you so much. You know, you're very, very welcome. And thank you to all my listeners. And feel free to uh, get to Facebook me or you have all my information. So I will definitely friend you back. So this is Beth Shankle Anderson for The Success Design signing off. <laughs>